Good evening, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Focus TV. We're so happy to be back in the studio, and there's oh so much to discuss. As always, um, Octavia, yes, you're happy to be here. Um, we're looking forward to your segment. Yes, we are. So that's Octavia Wyatt. We got Cardio Dudley, Wilson Tarbay Jr., and we are joined tonight by Coach Walter Webb. Um, we're going to talk to him in just a minute, but on tonight's show, we're going to talk a little bit about the Mystics and their current predicament right now in the semifinals. Uh, got an update about Terrapin football after a bye week. Octavia's NFL segment. Uh, I know. <laughs> uh, update on DC United. But again, um, let's go ahead and get started by talking with Coach. Well, well all right, Coach, want to start on, um, you know, not every player, every former player is capable of coaching. Uh, it's something where, you know, some think that they are. Uh, some always, sometimes they find out that they're not uh, once they get started. Was that something that was part of your plan originally as soon as your playing career was over? Or what kind of led you into it? Um, yeah, that's that's a great question. I uh, I was in a unique situation. Um, you know, I'm 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 a product of my mother and father both being basketball coaches. Uh, my mom she coached at Lackey High School in Charles County, and my father coached at Bishop McNamara. And uh, I, I grew up in that that atmosphere. So, uh, with that being said, you know, my nickname was Little Coach. Uh, <laughs> most kids three days after being born they go home. I went to a basketball game. So, you know, I, I was born in the gym. Um, and, and basically everything that I'm doing now, I've had an opportunity to watch them do. So uh, the relationships uh, that my parents had with their former players um, and administrators and things of that nature, um, I, I wanted that. I grew up with that. They're, they're, some of those people are some of my best friends um, and have helped mold me and, and mentor me, uh, you know, to a lot of the things that we're doing today. So. You know, going into coaching after you're playing, um, something has to replace your passion. I mean, if you're an athlete, uh, that adrenaline rush, um, you know, getting ready for a game, getting ready for a season, preseason, postseason, I mean, that's just who we are. You know, and, and when that's taken away from you, um, a lot of guys don't recover from that. Uh, I was very, very fortunate uh, to fall into a coaching position, which, again, I was somewhat familiar with. Um, but I didn't, you know, um, do like I thought I was going to do because playing the game, knowing the game, teaching the game, getting moving parts to do what you want them to do and to be where you want them to be, um, that's a completely different monster. So, you know, I, I had to get educated on that. And, again, um, you know, dinner at my parents' house, you know, moving salt and pepper shakers, running sets, you know, that was reality for me. So, uh, you know, I could, I could lean on you know, how to be politically correct, how to address a kid, how, you know, to change my tone, to talk to my teammates, uh, I mean, my, my, my student athletes, uh, whether it be um, practice or game time or halftime, uh, you know, I, I had a crash course that was immediate every night. All right. You've coached both men's and women's, uh, the boys and girls side of it. Uh, while they're both basketball, so they are, you know, once you get into nuances, they're not the same game. Uh, if you could talk about just some of the nuances in how you're able to go from both fairly easy looking at your winning yeah, record yeah uh you know i love coaching guys um but you know i mean i think a lot of people have to understand the dream job is coaching women you know women they play the game the the right way um there are a lot of things uh, that that they bring to the table um you know men is the high flying acts and you know the spectacular plays and 
you know, but, but women, you know, if you're a coach, you, you want to see your X's and O's work. Uh, you want to see um, um, a different type of passion um, and, and camaraderie there. Uh, and, and women, everywhere that I've ever been, they've always done that. You know, um, I've, I've seen, you know, by coaching both that, you know, uh, you, no matter how good the, the male team is, uh, I've yet to find my best male team play as well or execute as well right. or make in-game adjustments as well as some of the young ladies that I've had an opportunity to coach. Um, coach Webb, you, you mentioned that you played at Bishop McNamara. Um, sure. How was it playing in the WCAC then uh, compared to now? And um, how did playing in as far as the competition as a player and the coaching, the strategy, how did that help you become what you, what you are now as a coach? Yeah, I think anybody that has an opportunity to play in the WCAC uh, gets an unbelievable education as far as the game of basketball, uh, not just to mention, you know, a academically. But, you know, back then, you know, I remember walking out the locker room and, you know, playing JV and coming out the locker room and seeing my first varsity game at Bishop McNamara uh, while being a student. And, um, you know, you got Danny Ferry out there on the floor you know, it's eight to ten shots. Everything's off the glass. Everything's fundamentally sound. And, you know, playing against Gerard Mustoff, um, John Gwynn, um, you know, uh, it, it's – they were great players then and they're great players now. Uh, I think, you know, the, the difference – we worked a little bit harder, I think. I think there was a little bit more emphasis on, on blue collar instead of white collar. I think um, right now, you know, being a coach, um, I have a different lens that I'm looking through as far as young people having a sense of entitlement. Back then, we didn't have that. You know, it was you do this or that, you know, and, and, and that will happen. And, and, and people would get cut, you know, based on body language, you know. Um, there were no second or third chances and, and you, know, um, you know, running extra laps. I mean, we ran laps with you know, missing foul shots and not executing plays. We didn't run laps with disrespecting the coach. You know, you disrespect the coach, you disrespect the teammate, you're dismissed from the program, you know. And uh, I think that's the difference. But, you know, the WCAC is, is and forever will be, as far as I know and, and from what I've seen um, globally, um, is the best basketball, you know, conference that uh, high school has to offer just because, um, you know, you, you're, you're – you're in a conference that's a way of life. So, you know, when kids go to Gonzaga, uh, Bishop McNamara, um, St. John's, I mean, you, they're not just playing to play. They're playing to get a job. They're playing to get a scholarship. Those kids that are playing to get that scholarship, they've invested time before they got to high school to get to that moment. So you have more and more freshmen and more and more sophomores that are elite guys and the key guys on varsity teams. Um, you know, so, you know, back then it was so much talent that when I was playing, I mean, you know, to be the key guy as a freshman was extremely difficult. You know, you would have, you would have to, you know, really search long and hard to find somebody like that. Okay. Um, you moved on to college, played at Virginia Union, mm -hmm. um, Fairham College. Yeah. Now it's the thing where 
a lot of kids today look down on anything but Division One. If it's not a Division One offer, they don't want to have nothing to do with it. Sure. Um, can you talk about how competitive D two programs are, and and you know why it's an epidemic that kids dismiss anything but Division One when they come out of high school? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it is is just perception. Um, you know, you TV time. You know, look at the world that we live in with social media and all of those things. You know, everybody wants the major TV time. Everybody wants the visibility. You know, um, nobody wants to do anything in the dark um, and, and then talk about it. They want people to see it uh, and, and create a fan base. And you know, uh, Division One, Two, or Three. You know, I learned again uh, from my mom and dad. You know, and, and family friends that were in the game. Um, uh, you know, I remember Ty Bozeman telling telling me that you know the difference between Division One, Two, II, and Three is just the amount of students that attend the university or school um, it has nothing to do with the talent level. So, you know, if you're playing this game, you respect this game, um, you have to be prepared to compete against any and everybody. And, you know, I was a guy that went to Virginia Union at a time we were ranked number one in the country. Uh, and at that time, Sports Illustrated did all of the rankings. Well, if you think about it, I mean, we had D1 athletes that transferred to a D2. Um, you know, and I was a D2 to transfer to a D3. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, you know, a lot of us, you know, we, we made sure that we didn't let the game use us. You know, we got our education and um, we went on and, and took it a little bit farther and took the game as far as we possibly could and played at a high level. But, you know, young, young people today, they need to go where um, universities would like to see them mm -hmm. um, play. Uh, a lot of young guys are going to places uh, based on their friendships with other players, uh, with no relationship um, with the head coach or the assistant coach, um, and they're 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 gambling. You know, they're gambling and transferring and and going from program to program. Okay. After college, you went on to play pro mm -hmm. um, in China. Uh, you came back and started coaching, making stops at Riverdale Baptist, uh, which you have become a national power, coach of Christian and Cornerstone uh, Christian and in Texas. Uh, what was unique about each stop and the notable players you coached at each stop? Sure. Uh, you know, Riverdale was, was always going to be special for me just because it was, it was my first. Right. Um, it was my first, you know, coaching opportunity. I, I learned a lot. You know, uh, Terry Terrell, who was a baseball coach and athletic director there, Mickey Toll, um, you know, those guys gave me a chance. I was a young, young coach coming off from playing and, um, and a young Afro-American coach, you know, uh, in, in PG County. At that time, uh, you know, we, we kind of ran the, the AAU world. But, you know, Riverdale's a high-profile job. Uh, you know, uh, Pastor Mincer and those guys uh, wanted to compete and wanted to build a program. And, you know, I – that, that program was so special for me because, you know, I had Terry Terrell, who was national power in baseball, um, mentor me. Um, and then uh, we had uh, a, a school that was yearning for that opportunity to play at a very, very high level. So uh, our goals matched up. Um, after, you know, first year, second year, third year, I kind of, understood you know what the expectation was and and how to really go out and 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 get kids that you know one we're going to get it done and academically as well as athletically and 
and want to be in the gym to work, not just show up during the course of the season. Um, playing against Stu Vetter, uh, playing against Steve Smith, you know, um, you can play against as many coaches as you want to. Um, but the reality was, you know, outside of Morgan Wooten, who I knew by playing against him, uh, Riverdale wasn't playing against the Demathas of the world, but we did play against, you know, uh, Fork Union with Fletch, um, um, Montrose Christian, uh, and well, Prospect Hall, St. John's Prospect Hall when Stu was there, uh, and then Oak Hill. And I, I, I had to learn from them. Uh, and that's what I set my goal on, uh, to beat them. Um, you know, Stu beat us 170 something crazy to like 20, you know, uh, and that was our first game and, uh, you know, against him and that was the score. And, you know, a few years later, we were able to, to beat Stu. You know, of course he was at a different school, but he still had, you know, the same guys, the same philosophy. And, you know, for me, that was just um, a great accomplishment. I wanted to, to build something. Uh, I did that. Um, and then we went on to Coastal Christian and, uh, had an unbelievable run, six national championships in five years. We, uh, I was coaching both the boys and the girls, so we had five national championships on the boys' side, one uh, girl national championship, which we had an opportunity to, to play against Riverdale. Um, and, and even though I knew a lot of those young ladies, you know, when they were younger and they were competing against uh, us the year before, we were able to come back the following year and win. Um, and, you know, what was special about, you know, uh, Coastal was, you know, we had a few guys that we had at Riverdale that transferred down. Um, and they brought some of the PGDC mindset, uh, being hungry for a meal, um, you know, and, and, and the work ethic uh, to an already um, positive basketball environment in the 757, uh, but they were able to complete and finish their careers there with me at Coastal and make, have a great run. Um, we didn't win a national championship uh, at Riverdale, but we were able to um, do a really, really good job of, of competing and, and, and taking on the best teams, you know, in the country. Um, and that was Greg Harrison, uh, who's still doing extremely well in sports and entertainment. Um, and then we had uh, um, Anthony Garrison, who was probably top three point guards I've ever coached. Uh, just a young Jason kid. Um, and then Kevin Bell transferred from Rice High School, uh, played with Kenny Satterfield and Andre Barrett. Um, so, you know, you get a guy like that down here. I mean, to me, uh, he was the closest comparison just in his movement, his play, his stat line, you know, to a Gilbert Arenas at the high school level. Uh, and of course he played here. Uh, locally, um, an American, and then finish at Bowie. Following that, right? You, what was the motivation to start Slam City? You know, after winning, um, you know, a national championship, after chasing a national championship for so long, uh, and then winning, and then having the opportunity to be blessed as national coach of the year, you know, you, a lot of people started. You know, that's when all the negative things started coming out. Like, you know, uh, anybody can win with those teams that you have and you got all the talent in the world and who can't win with seven footers and, and all of those types of things. And, and, and I, 
I accepted what they were saying because, you know, I had one challenge when I was younger, and then there was a new challenge. And that, that new challenge was, okay, so, you know, what happens if, you know, I don't have all of those guys? And Slam City originally started when I was at Riverdale, but it didn't catch on until I really got down to um, Atlantic Shore, I mean, I'm sorry, Coastal Christian Academy in Virginia Beach. And it's actually an acronym that students learn and master because I teach youth. Um, and our mission statement is, you know, we're committed to training the overlooked to compete against the overrated. So a lot of kids get overlooked, but what a lot of those people didn't realize was 99% of the kids that I had through those years were kids that were overlooked, you know, and kids that weren't wanted somewhere. But, you know, you know, through hard work and family mindset and, you know, a lot of road trips, uh, a lot of van trips, um, and, and them seeing that, you know, myself along with my coaching staff and administration, that they believed in these young men um, and young ladies that, you know, we could, we could go out there and compete and, and uh, we were able to have some success from that. Big time. Um, your Slam City teams, uh, what age do they start at and what age do they end and what leads do you um, compete in? Sure. So, you know, we are, um, we start from kindergarten and go all the way up to 12th grade. Uh, our niche is eighth grade and below. Right. And a lot of that has to deal with the fact that we are um, one of the 15 flagship members of the junior NBA. So um, with that endorsement, um, that has to be our, our, our concentration um, to make a difference in the grassroots level. Uh, so, you know, we will we'll play in local tournaments. Uh, of course, we host um, because we have our own space. Um, and we'll bring teams in from everywhere. So we've seen the likes of everyone um, in our events. And that, that kind of helps us through the training side of things too because the, the, we'll train Monday, Wednesdays, Saturdays and Sundays. And Saturdays and Sundays we're not training, we'll actually um, have events. But after watching the kids on those, those events on Saturdays and Sundays, we're able to then help them Monday, Wednesday. Um, and in the summertime, we're in there 24-7, seven, seven days a week. For those that don't know, break down what the junior NBA is, because when most people think about you know, AAU, when they think about the Nike circus and Adidas, Under Armour, stuff like that, uh, most people not involved with basketball don't know what that is. Sure. So the junior NBA uh, is you know, a subsidiary underneath the NBA umbrella, and it is the purest cleanest form of grassroots basketball um, that we know today. Um, you know, we're, we're not about bashing any other organization. All we can do is talk about who we are, what we're doing, um, the background checks, the, the, um, the age verifications, um, you know, the height of the rim um, based on, you know, the younger kids playing, uh, you know, we do have certain in-game modifications that we do for the younger kids so that there's a curriculum for them to follow, uh, to educate them and 
to give them the prerequisites that they need moving forward. So, you know, from an educational standpoint, we don't go from first grade to fourth grade. You, you have to go first, second, third, fourth, and so forth, uh, and graduate through this program. So, Junior MBA is a program, um, and we're just fortunate enough to be one of the 15 to help uh, teach and educate young people of all ages to play the game the way the game is supposed to be played. Uh, with that, obviously, our, part, our partners, uh, USA Basketball, um, and you know, coaches, NBA players, past and present, have come together uh, with an online um, curriculum um, to help not just the players but also coaches. Um, there are two categories Junior NBA really focuses on outside of the young athlete, and that is the coach uh, as well as the parent. Um, we want to educate as many people as possible because, you know, the sidelines are different. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been a decline in officiating um, because it's a threatening job. I mean, you know, people, you know, get wrapped up into winning and losing um, and officials, you know, they're out there just blowing a whistle, but they really, you know, are, are given their time, you know, like, is it really worth um, some of the things that they're subject to? So, you know, we want to educate parents on how to act um, towards officials and also how to act towards their kids. Uh, and in the midst of that, you know, teach, train, develop, but also put on events such as the Junior NBA World Championships, which was just changed over to the Junior NBA Global Championships, which is the new, if you will, um, mini world basketball series that you see in baseball. So um, the coverage that we got, I mean, equal if not more, um, but again, lives are being changed, you know, we're crossing continents as far as competition. The world got an opportunity to see two years in a row um, players in the right age group competing against each other, nothing in question. Um, NBA officials, uh, the kids, the, the event itself, uh, it's a life changer, you know, because the kids wake up early, they have breakout sessions, they, you know, I mean, if a kid, knows that tomorrow morning he's going to wake up and he's going to have a conversation with Grant Hill, um, Dwayne Wade, uh, you know, and, and, and by the way, you, you'll also get an opportunity to see uh, Adam Silva and, you know, just, I mean, just the, the, the things that you get that you wait until you graduate from college or if you're one and done, lucky enough to, to shake that hand. These things, these kids are getting as eighth graders. So, you know, it's, it, it gives them something to, to stay the course. Uh, I think a lot of times things are so far away, they think that, oh, I can get myself together in two or three years. Whereas now, you know, we get an opportunity to kind of, you know, forecast for kids, look, we're looking at what you're saying and what you're doing via social media. We're looking at your body language. These are the things that you should eat. This is the way that you should act. This is how you should dress. Um, um, this is why education is important, all of those things. I mean, Junior MBA is more of a, an educational component set up to make sure that everybody understands what it looks like um, to be successful at this if this is what you want to do. Yeah, that's, that's huge, man. I wish I would have heard that. Oh, yeah, um, um, you won at every level. Um, Health changes programs completely around, um, but you have a new challenge here, John Sam. Uh, what will it take to build that program up and, and make that a force, not just locally, but eventually nationally? Yeah, I, I mean, 
you know, it, it's a tough job, um, but I'm, I'm embracing it uh, as I have with all the other jobs. Uh, 6A, first time for the school, uh, first time for me. I've always been in private and Christian education, so I've never been in the public school sector. Uh, so that's that's new for me, um, you know, on on a lot of different levels, and uh, you know, but I I think you know we'll we'll be fine. I think what it's going to take is is just for kids to to have fun, but understand that um, you have to work hard, you know, and and you know you can't say that you want a D1 scholarship or a D2 scholarship or play at the next level uh, without putting the time in. I think right now. You know, even though we like for kids to play multiple sports, sometimes, you know, kids never have an opportunity to really hone in on one thing, you know, even if it's, you know, two seasons away, you know what I mean? And, and But as coaches, we're kind of handcuffed to a certain degree. You know, we don't want to turn a kid off because obviously we need athletes. Um, but, you know, for the kids, if we can just get the kids to understand we're building something, um, they are at the forefront of that. Um, it's a new day, and we have to bring a different mindset and attitude uh, every day that we come here. And, and uh, the school spirit, unbelievable. Um, so, you know, I know that, you know, the stakes are high and everybody's excited about, you know, John Champ basketball. They've always had, you know, a great program. Um, just ball didn't bounce the right way in, in a couple of, you know, games. and. You know, a few years ago, they had um, Fagala, Don Fagala, um, who, you know, I mean, had he played one more game, he might have broken Allen Iverson's record. Uh, you know, so it's, it's you know, the, the, the school has, you know, that, that rich culture. Um, what, what I hope to try to bring to it is some structure um, and some boundaries, um, but also, you know, to, to, to command a certain level of consistency. You know, so that, you know, people, when we walk in the gyms right now, you can ask any coach, you know, in the state, like, who is John Chan? Like, what, are, what do you have to be worried about? You know, there's no answers there. You know, and I think that we need to start giving people things to be concerned about. The state of youth basketball today, um, is it more healthy and beneficial for kids today than it was when you first got in coaching, or is it worse? Yeah, I, you know, that's that's a tough question. Um, just because, you know, I think a lot of it is has a lot to deal with passion. I think, you know, it's not in a good state right now um, when we look at everything for broad scope. Um, but I do think um, we've made some changes uh, to get better within the last few years. Um, you know, I. I you know, reclassification is out of control. Um, you know, and for just calls, I think you know it's it's it should happen, but not happen just to happen. You know, um, because your kid didn't get playing time. Um, you know, and and some people may say, you know, I'll, I'll go on the record. Some people may say, you know, that reclassification is my fault. You know, because you know, Riverdale, we had it. You know, there was nobody else doing it, but when at Coastal, we did it. You know, college coach comes to me and say, hey, you know, back then there was nothing stopping a kid uh, from taking a class over, um, you know, and, you know, or replacing, you know, 
you know, grades from, you know, emerging grades together and taking the higher of the two. I mean, you know, now it's, it's just to be 19 and to have a better chance to get recruited playing against a kid that's doing it the right way. You have kids that are academically sound, student athletes that are doing everything that they're supposed to do, and they're in a situation where they're almost forced to reclass because everybody that they're competing against is, is 19 while they're, they just turned 18, you know? And, you know, and then some people are saying, well, you know, well, you, you can't play past 19 in high school. Well, that's not stopping anybody because then that's when private school steps in, you know? Uh, maybe not the WCAC, but, you know, you got other private schools out there um, that, will, that will take that in. Uh, and then you got the prep school side. So, you know, it, it, it makes things hard, but, you know, I, I think if we can just get young people to understand that put the time in, you need to go to junior college to get another year, you need to go to four-year university, red shirt, there's nothing wrong with that, you know. And, uh, you know, there, there are things that, that are in place already um, <coughs> But we live in a microwave state where everybody wants everything right now. Um, and then I think there's too much satisfaction um, being sought after on the high school level, feeling as though they've accomplished something by sophomore or junior year based on likes or whatever the case may be before they even accomplish college. You know what I mean? Like, you know, there's an interesting, you know, I, I, I talked to a group of coaches and you know, we have these these conversations and, you know, the, the, the stat that's being looked into right now is going to shock the world because the amount of kids that are eligible in the summer playing in AAU tournaments, oh, I'm sorry, the amount of kids that are ineligible playing in AAU tournaments right now are taking all of that attention that a kid that is eligible away. I mean, they, they're, just, they're still in that time. And then when the coaches go to go to get them, you know, then that kid has to go to prep school. Then they then they're scrambling looking for other kids and things of that nature. So, you know, it's it's a it's a mess right now to a certain degree, and it's not everywhere, um, but it's in enough places. Uh, and then you have reclass kids, and then you got double reclass. You know what I mean? So, you know, it's 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 tough. And and what's scary is you have some parents that don't know sports, and then they say. Oh, well, that's what we got to do. Right. You know what I mean? So, you know, I, I just ask that, you know, everybody educate themselves via the NCAA um, because they're going to tell you the truth um, as well as, um, you know, the college that's, that's recruiting you or your, your counselor. My last final question for you is sure. um, as far as the teaching of basketball nowadays, is it – you know, I, I was saying that trainers is like McDonald's is one on every corner right now. It mm -hmm. didn't used to be like that. You used to have to be a coach or have some type of resume to really teach kids. But now anybody get a follow and pop up, have kids come through. Uh, do you feel like the overall quality of teaching the game is up to par from trainers and skilled coaches um, as to, compared to like yesteryear before social media and all this hit? Mm -hmm. um, I think that coaches um, have a problem with a lot of trainers. Mm -hmm. um, 
one, the trainer doesn't take time out to develop the kid based on what the coach sees fit that that kid needs to work on. The trainer is, is going down what they think is best. Um, and then the trainer takes ownership when the trainer's not actually coaching the young man or the young lady. Uh, trainers right now are causing a lot of problems for real training programs. Um, not because they show up, because people will come back. Um, that's not it. It's, 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 it's the misleading portion. Um, you know, telling kids that they're better than what they really are. Um, uh, telling kids you don't need to play the post, you need to be on the wing, you don't need to be on the wing, you need to be at the point. Um, you know, just, just, just overall basketball skill development. Um, people don't understand the mental, psychological side of it. So when you're teaching, uh, there has to be some real consistency with, you know, and method of madness in what you're teaching, mm -hmm. you know, and you can't give it to them all in one time. And, uh, you know, your, your repetition is gonna determine your reputation. So, you know, a lot of times, you know, a kid will go into a training session, he'll be in there with a whole bunch of cones, a whole bunch of, you know, whatever, and, you know, bungee cords and all these, and that has nothing to do with helping that kid. Uh, sure, they might be better at what they are doing with that particular trainer at that particular time, if they continue to do that, but what does that high school, middle school, elementary coach really need this young man to work on? Sometimes it's just for them to play. Kids don't play on playgrounds anymore, so really trainers need to be quiet you know, and, and, and watch, and that, that's what I like to do. I like to watch the kids play and then see what their tendencies are and then say, instead of going right, you need to work on your left. Take every young man or young woman's weakness, make it their strength, you know what I mean? Then their strengths become their weaknesses, but then they can go back to their tendencies. Now you got a complete player. You know, you can't, you can't just show them one thing forever and then think that that's going to, you know, elevate them, you know, at whatever school or, you know, whatever program that they're playing in. So, you know, my thing is right now, you know, history. I think that every parent should look at the history of every trainer. If they haven't coached, if they didn't play, and what is what are their prerequisites? You know, like, we as parents, we look at education we want the best universities, we want the best high schools, we want the best of the best, but then when it comes to this, we don't see it as an educational thing. So we put kids in situations where they're not really being educated, and then when they don't make a team or don't get the college or don't get the exposure that they need, you know, then we, we want to blame the current coach. You know? So you know, for me, I just think that you just have to look at the bio um, of the trainer and the trainer doesn't have a bio they don't have a history um they don't have the prerequisites prior to i'm not saying don't go with them but i'm just saying just take everything with a grain of salt that's a heck of an answer <laughs> <laughs> to sum this up um Cardell, you like two more questions so thank you but um again great answers thank you for your insight coach no thank you thank you for coming in uh, we wish you the best this year john champ um Man, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, I'll tell you that segment's coming.
Not right, right now. It's, it's coming up. We're going to get to this fly even slot. Thing. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know if they're flying, but we definitely. <laughs> nah, we just like walking. <laughs> you're watching the Focus TV. We'll see you guys in just a minute. Welcome back to the Focus TV. Coach Walt Webb is still with us. So we're going to get into this mystic segment. Washington leads the series 2-1. Mm -hmm. um, one of the reasons that it's one and the series is not over is something Cardell, we talked quite a few times about yeah. this year. The Mystics don't have many weaknesses, but this particular weakness is something that has troubled no matter several iterations of Mystics teams throughout Coach DeBolt's tenure here. So, you know, I'm going to give you the floor and let you go. I mean, it's the physicality. That's the main thing I've always, throughout the season, kind of worried about. And you kind of saw when they came to D.C. the first time in the middle of the season, they beat them. Mm -hmm. But you couldn't really gauge it because Deladon was out. So right. you just kind of took it, uh, you just keep, took notice of it. But Cambage, that, it, they're basically starting to find themselves, I'm talking about the Aces, um, their identity that they hoped they would have found earlier. I'm pretty sure Lambeer wish they would have found earlier right. when they acquired Cambage. And that's to just dominate teams in the, point, in the paint, just beat them up. And that's what they do. And if you double down, dig down, and try to stop them, they do have capable shooters. So it's like, it's hard. It's like pick your poisons. Um, the thing that kind of bothers me is the Mystics front court. It's not the entire team because the guards are scrappy. You, yeah. You're not going to rough them. The, the front court, they act like they don't like to throw their body around bang a lot. And just because you, you know, say you're thin, you weigh less, don't mean you can't hold your own. Because I've seen some of the guards like Powell's and Cloud get switched on Cambodge, and they're a fronter and denier, and they can't throw the pass into them. So why can't the bigs do that more often? And it starts before you even get close to the paint. When they run a basket, the basket, you know, for one, Cambodge or, or even Asia, they shouldn't be beating all of the bigs from basket to basket and getting yeah. easy scores. That's one thing you can eliminate. Okay, and then two, beat them, I'll hustle them or beat them to the spot. So when they trying to set up and post up, you already at the spot and you can push them out further. Now they're on the perimeter having to start over and they're not comfortable. Asia maybe is, but Cambodge definitely not. And we all can, we all have seen Cambodge, she gets frustrated very easily. So if you take her out of comfort zone, make her have to work and do things she's not comfortable doing or don't want to do, she'll get frustrated. And then you you have a win. The Mystics players gonna do that. The front court, and that includes the MVP, Deladon. Yeah. She could do a better job as well. Um, I know she has her hands full dealing with Asia Wilson. That's a that's a hell of a battle. They playing chess. They've been playing chess the entire series, but they have to step up. And I'm talking about even the reserves. I'm talking about Tiana Hawkins, everybody, and they have to match their physicality. And the fact that Cambodge said, you know, when she said that to the post game, yeah. you know, they don't like it getting away room. If, if they don't like it, get out the post. Come on, man. Like, tonight, it should just be on site. Like, we don't, nothing needs to be said. Like, all right, you, you, you going at them, you know, in their case, womanhood. You know, you yeah. putting it. So, um, and here's some things that I want people to kind of keep an eye on from last game. Uh, the Aces shot 35 to 72 in game three. Out of their 35 makes 23 were inside the paint. Uh, Wilson and Cambodge combined to shoot 20 for 29 from the floor. Yeah. Adding Kayla McBride, 6 of 11, six of 11, 11 shooting, and you have the Aces starting front court combined to shoot 26 of 40 in that game. Uh, Hamby came off the bench, another front court there reserve, added four, and shot four or five from the field. So you clue her and Carolyn Swords one made the Aces front court shot 31 of 46. The rest of the team, majority perimeter players, shot four of 26. Yeah. That means Don Washington was just clearly just dominating in the paint. There was yep. no resistance. That's how you have Cambodge talking reckless in the postgame. Only Tyler and Deladon showed up last game offensively. 
Uh, the Aces are rebounded Washington 40 to 28. The Mystics have yet to win a rebounding battle this series. That's another thing about physicality. So you're already at a disadvantage with that. And also, the bigs attack the bigs more, get to the free throw line. They're settling up for too many jumpers. Um, the Aces have shot 51 to 59 from the free throw line during the first three games of the series. The Washington and Mystics have shot 39 to 42. So they are already at a 17-shot deficit. But they don't miss free throws. So you're missing opportunities not only to get easy points, but to get their bigs and foul trouble, which puts them on the bench and makes it easier for you. You don't have to bang as much. And, and that's an, but that's a, the other side of not being aggressive and being physical. So you have to match their physicality, which will basically you being aggressive. And then, you know, everything will kind of flow even on offense. And, and like me, man, she disappointed me because you've been killing. Now yeah. you're scared to take shots all of a sudden because you took a couple of elbows or something. Latoya Sanders, you a mid-range sniper. You don't miss. And all of a sudden, Cam Myers throw a couple of elbows. Now you just missing. You're not even close now. You know, that's a mental focus thing. And what I mean by being tougher, it's not just physical, even mentally and emotionally. They they have to they have to match it. Or it's going to be a series where they, they come back here for game five and anything can happen. No, you're completely right. And the saddest part about it was we saw Latoya, who's usually not very emotional. She plays very physically in game two. Yeah. We saw that from her, from Emma. Emma putting the ball on the floor, attacking the paint. There was like at least two very physical drives by Emma that resulted in once. Um, and that's the most frustrating thing about the Mystics. It's not that they can't do it. It's what saddens me with them is that they have to wait until their backs are pushed against the wall, specifically talking about their bigs, um, because they're capable. Yeah. Um, Sanders with the length, she had a 2K animation type block in game mm -hmm. two. Um, they're, they're fully capable. Um, and as for the Aces, the only thing that I worry about, I know they had a good game three is, I understand you had a good game three, you staved off elimination, there's no reason to be talking reckless after one game. Um, I understand that's like your coach's mentality. He's not out on the floor. Um, and then they kind of try to walk it back a little bit the following day, which, wow. which disappointed me too, because I'm kind of like, you're gonna take that stance, on that stance. Once you went there, you went there. You told a bunch of grown women to get in the weight room. Stand on it. It's no, fine. and that wasn't even the worst one. See, no, no, it wasn't. Up. Yeah, there's another, one. Said, yeah, there's, there's another one. Which is, which, which I, <laughs> That's what I'm looking at. Like, which was the mystics. See, yeah. see, you got me on site. Like, yeah. all right, I gotta get you. Like, I, I'm raised. Like, all the little stuff. Asia, talk, I mean, um, Raj talked yeah. about mental. I'm gonna go there oh. during the game. I'm gonna try to get. I'm gonna mess you up. I'm gonna try to mess you up. Cause see, you ain't have to do that. When we won, Emma just saying, "Hey, man, I'm just, we just playing our game. We kept it humming. Now you done took it." So now I got to go there. I got to make it personal on, on the court. Yeah. Because I'm going to try to get in your head so you get frustrated. Because you see that with him. When, she, when a couple calls don't go away, she, like at the game one, Lambert was pissed at her. Dude, he took her out for yeah. most of the third because point. she's not running back, you know, throws the head back. <laughs> get back in transition. Like, and that's the worst part about it when you talked about letting the Mystics like their big beat them down the floor. There's no big on the Mystics that has an issue running up exactly. and down the court. There's not one. They don't all want of them are fully That's capable. why they looking like yeah. that. They don't, that's all it is. Yeah, like, oh, I'm going to make it. I'm going to hide the fact I don't want to bang. Yeah. But, and that's know, the other thing to. is um, I'm very curious to see if he hits the Maisha button tonight. Yeah. Um, because power. of the physicality, the, the powers button. Just because, yeah, like you said, Maisha doesn't have the height, but she's very athletic and she has no issue throwing her she's way around. Mm -hmm. yeah. she, she's going to hit you. Mm -hmm. And she enjoys it. Um, it's in their family. Uh, but... The other thing, you know, and this was crazy, uh, EDD not getting unanimous MVP. Uh, some people like, you have to take ownership for your decisions if you are one of those privileged people that does get a vote. Be responsible. Don't be reckless. Don't be take, your, take your personal things aside out of it. 
I love Courtney Vandersloot. She's not the best player on her own team. Um, Chicago doesn't make the jump they make this year without one Diamond Shields, who's killing right now for the USA team um, because she's picking up where she left off this year because she's been that special, that dynamic. And then also, can't forget the Connecticut Sun. Uh, they completed a sweep, LA Sparks. Uh, they got rid of a player that went to LA, swept them, moved on, got better addition by subtraction. And I mean, I'm not gonna go any deeper than that, but the Sun are waiting on the winner of this series. Octavia, fly, Eagles, fly, let's get it. <laughs> Here we go. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's about to be the shortest NFL segment. Definitely, because we don't have much to talk about. <laughs> um, week three, NFL. Um, NFC East looks a little crazy, which is every year. I don't know why I'm surprised. Um, but the Giants definitely pressed a button this week as well. Um, set Eli Manning down, and the rookie Daniel Jones took over. The Giants beat the Bucks 32-31. Um, the Giants are now 1-2. They're 0-1 in the division as of now. Their next game is going to be next week against the Redskins. Dan Jones finished 23-36, 336 yards, two touchdowns, four carries, 28 yards, and two rushing touchdowns. Saquon Barkley had eight carries for 10 yards. Wayne Gellman had five carries for 13 yards. Evan Ingram, six receptions, 113 yards, one touchdown. And Sterling Shepard also had seven receptions, 100 yards, one touchdown, two carries for 21 yards. Um, notable, Saquon Barkley went out um, close to the end of the second quarter. He, from what I've heard, is right now out for four to six weeks. He's in a walking boot. He's on crutches. He has a high ankle sprain. It's not a good look, especially with a new um, quarterback coming in. So, um, Gallman is definitely going to have to step up and take more of the carries because without that, everybody knows they're going to go to the air. Um, but the Daniel uh, Jones era definitely had a great start, you know, definitely showed why the Giants picked them. I don't know what take, took them so long to put them in, you know, I mean, the Giants have been on this Eli train for a while, no disrespect to him, you know, probably getting all the fame and everything like that, but I been believed his time was up. Um, Daniel Jones was responsible for four touchdowns this game, he threw two, ran two, um, he threw a 75-yard bomb to Evan Ingram. Evan Ingram has come into his own this year so far, um, especially, you know, everybody was worried about OBJ leaving, and um, Ingram was definitely injured a lot last year, so it was good to see him back in the fold and, you know, doing really, really well. And um, before Saquon went out, you know, like I said, he did only have 10 carries, I mean, uh, eight carries for 10 yards. So they actually was kind of keeping him, you know, together. He, he didn't do too much, the Bucks defense, you could tell they honed in on the fact, like, you're not going to beat us. We're going to make everybody else beat us if that's what happens, and cool. Um, and they actually had a chance to still win the game. Field goal kickers are still a hot commodity <laughs> out here in the NFL. If you got a good one, hold on to them. Because luck with kickers, though. It is rough if you are a kicker. Um, but like I said, they'll play the Redskins next week. Um, Cowboys played the Dolphins. The Cowboys are now 3-0, 2-0 in the division. They beat the Dolphins 31-6. They played the Saints this Sunday. Um, Dak Prescott, 19-32, 246 yards, two touchdowns, one interception, two carries for seven yards, one rushing touchdown. Elliott had 19 carries, 125 yards. Tony Pollard had 13 carries for 103 yards and one touchdown. And Amari Cooper, six receptions, 88 yards, two touchdowns. Um, everybody's very, very high on Dallas right now, as they should be. Um, this is not me being a hater today. <laughs> they look good, um, but I still think – then the beginning of this game, 
it was very uncharacteristic for them, you know, to come out. You already know you're playing against the Dolphins. The Dolphins are unloading talent left and right, so they're kind of tanking for the year. If you don't know that by now, I don't know what you're watching. But the Cowboys are 3-0 and for the first time since 2008. It's a big thing for them. Um, they were only up 10-6 at halftime. <laughs> eight penalties. I mean, they had eight penalties for 100 guys in the first half. So, like I said, they had a definitely an uncharacteristic, you know, first half. Dak threw an interception, and he's been pretty much spot on as the year has, you know, gone on so far. But their rushing game was really, really well. Um, like I said, you had two running backs, one over 100 yards. It's the first time since 1998 with Emma Smith and Chris Warren. Um, like I said, they had a first – Sloppy first half, but it was the Dolphins, so it was expected that they should win their 3-0 at this point. Um, but in my opinion, Kellen Moore is the real MVP Facts. of this team. Facts. Babyface and all came in there and got their office together, got Dak looking like he deserved the money that he wants. So. <laughs> looking like? You don't think he deserved it? It's only she three throws. games, <laughs> and they haven't really played top-tier caliber teams yet. Don't get me wrong. I'm not downplaying any of their wins because you got to play the team that's in front of you, and those are the teams that are in front of you, and you do what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to win, so they should get no slack for that. they 3-0, but I want to see how it progresses. Um, now to the... Yeah. <laughs> How did you know I was going there next? <laughs> Only one more team to talk about. Let's yeah, go. yeah, yeah. So the Philadelphia Eagles played the Lions. Uh, Eagles 24, Lions 27. <laughs> the Eagles are now 1-2. Hmm. I'm glad we weren't here last week, so I didn't talk about that game. But um, <laughs> their next game is going to be Thursday against Green Bay. It's oh. not getting any easier. Nope. Um, Carson Wentz was 19 of 36, 259 yards, two touchdowns, four carries for 33 yards. Miles Sanders, 13 carries, 53 yards, two receptions, 73 yards, and two fumbles. I'm going to throw that in there, too. Um, Josh, <laughs> Jordan Howard, 11 carries, 37 yards, one touchdown. Zach Ertz, four receptions, 64 yards. Mac Hollins, four receptions, 62 yards. Nelson Aguilar, eight receptions, 50 yards, and two touchdowns. I mean, this whole game was just riddled by drops. Just drops. Just anywhere you thought somebody should drop it, they dropped it. It, it happened all over the field. It was ridiculous. Um, you never see how much you like, because I mean, again, in the year, I feel like we had a, a good receiving core, but <laughs> as soon as the top two got hurt, everybody else forgot how to play and catch the ball. You know, Nelson Aguilar has had these issues in the past, but we thought we corrected him when they put him in the slot. It ain't really helping right now. Now he did redeem himself, but I mean, these are balls that are like, like in your hand, like I don't know what's happening. Carson had no help. Carson did everything he could do. Um, if they're not catching the balls, and then our defense ain't helping either on the backside. You know, we need our secondary is trash. I'm sorry to <laughs> say it. Our secondary is trash. <laughs> um, outside of Malcolm Jenkins at this point, blocking the blocking the field goal was amazing. Uh, Malcolm, you the real MVP as of now, but we need the rest of them to get their oh, lives together. You got help coming. Whenever it gets here, Nate, my man Nate coming back. He can sit. <laughs> um, Miles Sanders, two fumbles in the same drive. I, it kind of killed me. Uh, you know, the first one they recovered, the second one they went away. It was just all around, just bad. Too many penalties. Three offensive pass interferences. You know, um, on Darius Bros had the one at, at the late at the end of the game, and um, Matt Collins had two, which would have been three 
It was what's called the third one, but they <laughs> revisited it. But yeah, they played the, the the Packers this week. It ain't gonna get no easier. Um, and I actually just looked at our, our our schedule for the rest of the year. It ain't too many like layups on that joint, so it's a little bit rough so right now. With us. It's it's looking like it. It's it's, it's it's looking like it. Unless unless everybody, you know, we have a lot of injuries too. Timmy Jernigan is hurt. You know, uh, Malik Jackson broke his foot. Alshon will be back this week. Dallas Goddard dropped the ball right in his hands as well. <laughs> he was a game time decision, and I think that was the only target he had that game. He barely even played the game, and the one target he got, he dropped. It was just all around just bad. It's just bad. I didn't even want to watch it anymore. <laughs> um, and lastly. You're, <laughs> stop <laughs> laughing at me. It's hilarious. <laughs> it's the truth. It's hilarious. Um, but we were not outdone for the worst game of the week. The Redskins played the Bears. The Redskins are now 0-3, 0-2 in the division. They lost to the Bears 31-15. And it was bad. Case Kingdom was 30-43, 332 yards, three interceptions. Uh, um, two touchdowns, excuse me, two touchdowns, three interceptions. Adrian Peterson, 12 carries, 37 yards. Um, Chris Thompson, 7 carries, 29 yards. Paul Richardson, 8 receptions for 83 yards. To me, the only bright spot for them is Scary Terry. Um, to come in, you know, people pegging him to be on the, the special teams and, and whatnot, and to come in and lead the way he has been, he's been the bright spot for them. I'm still very confused that there hasn't been a firing yet anywhere at all because it was bad you know <laughs> three picks josh norman is continuously getting burnt this year i don't know what's happening i mean he did get an interception but i mean he's been burnt every game this year by somebody and it's been it's been bad um there's really nothing to say about the redskins at this point you okay. know okay so we could go ahead and wrap that up. Right, we will. So thanks for the NFL segment. You're welcome. It's a mighty, mighty penny. We'll try again next week. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Jamal Hayward's back with the 61st installment of the 9450 breakdown. This week, Jamal Hayward is showing off a mid post move. Again, it is a mid post move. Welcome back. Before we close out tonight's show, can we, without talking about DC United, the Black and Red beat the visiting Seattle Sounders 2-0 at home this past Sunday night. Lucas Rodriguez scored in the first half. And Frederick Brignan scored in the second half off a set piece taken by Mr. Wayne Rooney. DC United is on a three-game win streak, currently fourth in the East. They did make the playoffs. They had a little, you know, midseason struggle. But uh, they closed strong, and they're one of the teams where despite what's going on, it's going to be hard to put them up. It's too much talent. Um, and... There's going to be a lot of pride involved right now. It's Wayne's last year. Um, we don't know what's going to happen upstairs, period, with what's going on. There's a lot of rumors. But they finish up the regular season October 6th when they host FC Cincinnati. This Sunday, they head up to New York to take on their, one of their arch nemesis in the New York Red Bulls. Thank you guys for tuning in. We are so grateful that you guys provide us with your continued support. Thank you, Coach Walt Webb, for coming through tonight. I definitely enjoyed the conversation. And, you know, Mystics coverage this week. You know, uh, it's about that time of the year when everything's about to be going on. At the same time, um, make sure you guys keep up with us this week for uh, Penn State Maryland preview. Cardell does a great in-depth job with those. And uh, we'll see you guys next week, same time, same place, right here on the Focus TV, DC TV.